Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Rob has written dozens of books with titles like The Red Sea Rules, Then Sings My Soul, and Reclaiming the Lost Art of Biblical Meditation. Recently, Rob began a video teaching series entitled The 50 Final Events in World History, The Book of Revelation Demystified. You can use this self-paced video study for individual or group use. It includes downloadable visual aids for personal reference or for Bible teachers who want to teach this material to others. Visit robertjmorgan.com courses and use the coupon code podcast at checkout for a special listener's discount. And now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Hello and welcome to my weekly podcast. For many years, I prepared and preached a sermon every week. I did it for four decades, but my roles in life have shifted, and now I preach on a more fluctuating schedule, both at my home church, the Donaldson Fellowship in Nashville, and elsewhere. So this podcast is my way of preparing and presenting meaningful Bible studies week by week. I so appreciate your listening in. Today, I want to begin a new series of podcast episodes on the subject how firm a foundation. And yes, I'm talking about the great hymn that says, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. As you may know, I'm an advocate for contemporary Christian music and for the modern hymnists, but I'm also passionate about retaining the riches of the sacred music of the past. As it relates to Christian music, it's our hymns and our hymnody that I'm most concerned about because if we aren't careful, the great hymns will become an endangered species in the Christian world. Indeed, they already are an endangered species. I feel like I'm fighting to keep them from becoming extinct. This series of podcasts coincides with the release of my newest book, Then Sings My Soul, 52 Hymns That Inspire Joyous Prayer. It's now available for pre-order from your favorite bookstore or book distributor. To supplement this new book release, I'm excited to share with you two other resources. The first is a video course that I've wanted to teach for a long time. It's called Save the Hymns. And later this year, you'll find it on my website at robertjmorgan.com studies. The second is this podcast series. And before I go any further, let me give a shout out to my friend Jeff Bennett, who arranged and provided the music for this series of podcasts. His beautiful arrangement of how firm a foundation will open and close every episode of this series. Jeff is the worship pastor at the great Second Baptist Church in Houston, Texas, where he works alongside Dr. H. Edwin Young who was my pastor and my mentor when I was in Columbia, South Carolina as a student in the early 1980s. Dr. Young was the pastor of the First Baptist Church there, and now he's been in Houston many years, and Jeff is an incredible musician who works by his side. And if you want to know more about Jeff and his music, visit his website at jeffbennettmusic.com. Well, as I've said for many years, I've wanted to break down the hymn, Have Firm a Foundation, and preach or teach about the scriptures on which this hymn is based. I know of no other hymn or Christian song that is so packed 
with the promises of God is this one. In fact, its original name was Exceedingly Great and Precious Promises. There are seven verses to have firm a foundation, and each verse is based on one or more of the Bible's greatest promises. So I want to follow the stanzas of this hymn right into the scripture and into the biblical promises that inspired them. The verses of this hymn, when you learn them, will send some of the Bible's greatest Bible verses right into the core of your soul. You'll be able to literally sing God's word at a moment's notice, whether aloud while you're taking a walk or silently when you're facing a difficulty. But first, in this episode, let me tell you the remarkable story behind How Firm a Foundation. I love this story because it's interwoven with the Baptist and with the dissenters of Old England and with one remarkable church. And the story I'm going to tell you covers 400 years. One church one hymn, and 400 years of interesting history. And believe me, God has had his hand on this church. Year after year, decade after decade, the story of this one church demonstrates that no church is unimportant if Christ is preached there. I don't know of another local congregation that has a history and a heritage quite like this one. And by the way, it continues today. In fact, just last night, I watched the most recent service on their live streaming website. I'll give you that information later. But this church, still in existence and vital and evangelical, had its beginnings in the 1600s in London. In the early 17th century in England, those who didn't belong to the Church of England were called dissenters, and they were terribly persecuted. They dissented from recognizing the king as the head of the church. They dissented from having a state-run church at all. They felt that congregations of Christians should be able to meet without being part of the governmental Church of England. These dissenters were hunted down by the crown, and they were driven out of the land. Many of them were persecuted or imprisoned. One group of them came to America in 1620, and they were called the Pilgrims. Over the next 30 years, thousands more of these Puritans came to America, established the city of Boston, and populated New England. I tell this story in my book, 100 Bible Verses That Made America. But some of the dissenters, including some of the Baptists, remained in England and braved the persecution. One group of them began meeting in a house that was in the Kennington area of London. This house belonged to the widow Colf, C-O-L-F-E, the widow Colf. On one occasion, the police sent officers to arrest this woman, but she told them that she was nursing someone who was suffering smallpox, and they were afraid to arrest her, and they didn't bother her again. We don't know a great deal more about this widow, but as the congregation that started in her home slowly grew, they finally appointed a young pastor, Reverend Benjamin Keach who was a great advocate for the singing of hymns and the preaching of Scripture and for the Christian education of children. I would love to have known this man. I've read about him for a number of years. He was born on Leap Year Day, February 29, 1640, in a British village. His parents couldn't afford to send him to college, 
So he thought about becoming a tailor, but he was converted to Christ and baptized at the age of 15, and he started preaching at the age of 18. He was 28 when he became the pastor of this church that had started in the widow's house, and the church grew greatly under his ministry. Well, as I said, Benjamin Keach was an advocate for the singing of hymns. At that point, most English churches only sang the versified Psalms of David. Hymns were considered very controversial. They were considered to be man-made compositions. But Benjamin Keach stubbornly championed the singing of hymns, even though he was widely criticized and had problems about it even within his own church. Benjamin Keach also wrote a book for children, which included a catechism or a statement of faith for youngsters. This offended the government of England and marked him for persecution. Officials arrested him, and he was condemned to be locked in the public pillory. And a crowd, as was customary in those days, gathered to taunt him. But he preached to them so earnestly that everyone listened as though they were in church. The jailer threatened to gag him, but still he preached on. And Benjamin Keach continued writing. In all, he wrote 43 books, all while he was pastoring this church in London, winning the lost, writing hymns, and fending off the authorities. When the laws finally changed and more freedom came, Benjamin Keach led his church in constructing a building near the site of London's Tower Bridge in the area that was known as Horse Lie Down or Horsley Down. And so the church that began in Widow Colf's house became the Horsley Down Church near Tower Bridge, and it was probably the first church in England to actually sing hymns. When Benjamin Keach was on his deathbed, he sent for his son-in-law, Benjamin Stenton, and charged him to take care of the church and to accept the pastoral office should it be offered him. He was the pastor there for the next 14 years. Stenton worked hard to help erect a new place of worship in Unicorn Yard, and he worked until February 11, 1718, when he suddenly told his wife, I am going. He got sick. He said, I am going, and he laid down on his bed, and he died at the age of 43. Well, then the church needed a new pastor. So in 1729, many of the members wanted to hire a very young minister named John Gill, G-I-L-L. But there was a strong group of pros to him, and so the church divided over it. About half of the church withdrew from the chapel in Goat Yard and met in Mr. Crosby's schoolhouse, claiming it to be the old church, while the other group remained in the chapel and claimed they were the original church. They built a building on Carter's Lane in 1757. It was near London Bridge. And so the church that began in the widow's house and had become the Horsley Down Church was now called the Carter's Lane Church. Dr. Gill's pastorate at Carter Lane extended 51 years from 1720 to 1771. He was a brilliant man, a great scholar and a writer, a man of indefatigable industry and of great honesty. In the doctor's latter years, the congregation fell away and membership seriously declined. The church wanted to choose a 
co-pastor, but Gill did not want anyone sharing the ministry with him. He stayed in control, even though the young people gradually dropped off and the church barely numbered 150 believers. When Dr. Gill died, there was another disagreement about a successor. Many wanted a young man, and they chose a young fellow named John Rippon. He was 20 years old, of a vivacious temperament, quick and bold. He had only been a Christian since age 16. The older members thought him too young. Some even accused him of going up the pulpit stairs two steps at a time. When he was elected pastor, about 40 people left the church because they thought he was too young and immature. Rippon took it all in stride, and he commented that he was surprised that more had not left. He treated the departing members graciously and gave them a sum of money to help them build their own meeting house, and he took part of the installation of their first pastor. Ironically, these older people who had split off elected someone even younger than Rippon, a 19-year-old, for their pastor. Well, anyway, under Rippon's ministry, the church grew. The chaplain Carter Lane was enlarged in various agencies and societies, benevolent ministries, and children's works were set into motion. There was a spirit of revival in the church. Rippon was not the intellectual or theological giant that Gill had been, but his preaching was lively and useful, and many came to Christ, and many young men rose up to become pastors under his ministry. During these years, the church became one of the largest congregations in England. Just like Benjamin Keach, John Rippon was a lover of hymns, and he adored Isaac Watts and the hymns of this great man, Isaac Watts, who helped give birth to English hymnody. But he felt that there was a need for newer hymns in addition to those of Watts, and he was concerned that some areas of truth and theology and Christian experience were not adequately served by the existing hymns. So he wrote hymns, and he managed to collect a large number of new hymns from himself and from others. In 18, or rather in 1787, Rippon published an important hymnal entitled A Selection of Hymns from the Best Authors Intended to be an Appendix to Dr. Watts' Psalms and Hymns. This hymn book published by Rippon contained 588 hymns. Among them was a new hymn entitled Exceedingly Great and Precious Promises. This is the hymn we know of as How Firm a Foundation. In the early editions of Rippon's hymn book, this particular hymn was accompanied by the letter K, followed by a dash. Dr. Rippon typically printed the author's name above the hymn, but with this hymn there was only the letter K, followed by a dash. For many years, hymn scholars debated the authorship who wrote this hymn. Several people, whose last name began with the letter K, were suspected. And then a Mr. H. L. Hastings in Boston published new research that strongly indicated the words were written by a man named Robert Keene, K-E-E-N-E. He was a musician who had led the music and the worship for a time under the ministry of John Rippon. Apparently, Robert Keene was a humble man, who didn't want to take any credit for the words of the hymn, and he must have asked that only his initial be used. 
he must also have been a very keen student of Scripture because his hymn is a masterpiece of biblical truth. At the beginning, How Firm a Foundation was sung to a tune called Gerard, which was apparently composed by Robert Keene himself to go with this hymn. Since I'm not a vocalist, I've asked my friend Chris Hooper to sing a verse for you using the original first verse to the original music. This was the way this song, How Firm a Foundation, was sung when it was first introduced. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said? You who unto Jesus, you who unto Jesus, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled. Thank you, Chris. That's so beautiful. Well, in 1820, How Firm a Foundation was published in the United States to the tune Adest Fidelis, which is the tune that we use for the Christmas carol, O Come All Ye Faithful. And for much of the 1800s, if you had heard How Firm a Foundation, this is the way it would have sounded. Chris is going to sing it again for us using this tune. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled. All I can say, Chris, is I wish I had a voice like that. Well, this is the way that How Firm a Foundation sounded for many years, those two tunes. But then in the 19th century, a man named Joseph Funk, the son of German immigrants, settled in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. He lived in a log house beside a spring of water, and he composed music for fellow Germans. To this day, the area where he lived is called Singer's Glen. In one of his hymn books, there appeared a tune that he called Protection. No one knows the composer. Was it funk or someone else? Well, today, this same hymn tune is called Foundation, and it's the tune by which most of us would typically be singing this hymn in our churches. And Chris, give us a sample of this. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith. In his excellent word, what more can he say than to you he hath said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Thank you, my friend. So to sum up, both the words and the music to have from the foundation are somewhat shrouded in mystery 
but the lyrics probably came from Robert Keene, and the today's most popular tune for us probably came from Joseph Funk. But now back to the church that started in the widow's house. John Rippon remained at the Carter's Lane Church for many years, but in 1830 the building was closed and pulled down for making approaches to the new London Bridge. The city gave the church a financial compensation for taking their property, but for three years the church had no building of its own. It barred the facilities of other churches. Ripon by that time was quite aged, and for a long time church leaders looked around for available space. They could not have found a worse location. They bought some land in a dim, dirty, destitute part of town, on land that frequently flooded, and to make matters worse, people had to pay to cross a toll bridge to get to the church. It was surrounded by breweries and vinegar factories, and it was half a mile from the last cab stop. But the land was very cheap, and so the church built a beautiful building there, and Dr. Rippon was present at the opening of this new house of worship in 1833. It was called the New Park Street Church. Rippon continued for another three years, but he was in decline and unable to carry on his duties very well. He died in 1836 at the age of 86, and listen to this, between John Gill and Rippon, they had pastored the same church for a total between them of 117 years. Joseph Angus became the pastor for three years, and then Mr. James Smith became the pastor of New Park Church for eight and a half years, from 1841 to 1850. And then in 1851, the church invited Reverend William Walters to become pastor, but his term was very brief. And when he left, the church was in a sad condition. Its very existence was in question, and it looked to some as though God had forgotten his people. The church was in steep decline. But then, in 1854, they hired a 19-year-old boy with no theological training and no prior experience, and they asked him to become the head of this dilapidated church. Would you believe it? Within weeks, the church was full of people, it was overflowing, and soon there was no auditorium in London, nor indeed in all of England, to accommodate the people wanting to get in. The boy's name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, as we call him today. The church was enlarged to its greatest capacity and renamed the Metropolitan Tabernacle. That is still its name today, and it continues ministering in a rough part of London under the ministry of Dr. Peter Masters, who has been at the helm since 1970. And so the story of a great hymn and of a great church are interwoven in the providence of God over a period of 400 years. In the next episode, I want to teach from scriptures and from those passages that are behind the seven stanzas of this hymn, and I encourage you to memorize one or more of its stanzas. In closing, let me quote them for you. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, you who unto Jesus 
for refuge have fled. And every condition, in sickness and health, in poverty's veil or abounding in wealth, at home or abroad, on the land, on the sea, as your days may demand, shall your strength ever be. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God, I will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen and help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my gracious, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not thee overflow, for I will be with thee thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design, thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Even down to old age, all my people shall prove my sovereign, eternal, unchangeable love. And when silver hairs shall their temples adorn, like lambs they shall still in my bosom be born. And the final verse. That soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I shall not, I shall not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Over the next seven episodes, I'm excited about preaching the Bible verses on which these stanzas are based. I hope you'll join me. And I hope that you'll come to love this great hymn as much as I do. Thank you for listening to this podcast. My special gratitude to Chris Hooper for helping me with it. This podcast was produced by Joshua Rowe and Clearly Media. Edited by Elijah Rowe. The music by Jeff Bennett. For more information and resources, visit my website at robertjmorgan.com. And to subscribe to this weekly ministry, visit robertjmorgan.com slash podcast. This is Robert J. Morgan. Thank you for listening.